We're in Titus 2, so grab your Bibles, grab your phones, grab your scroll, whatever you got, open up Titus chapter 2. Um, and as you're getting there, just a reminder, this is a, uh, this book, it's the book of Titus, it's in the scripture, it's one of the six, six books, but uh, it was written by the Apostle Paul initially, and it was written to a man named Titus who is on this island of Crete, uh, and he's been tasked with setting up churches and continuing the discipleship of, of Christians, new believers on this, on this island. Um, and so, uh, as we're, we're getting into this, one of the things we see today is this, this passage that we've got today. Uh, it, it's one of the most, if not the most, succinct kind of descriptions in, in the scriptures of what it means to live uh, a gospel-centered life. Uh, and, and I love this passage. It's so great. It's one of those ones that, you know, I, I came to faith in high school, uh, and many times in my life I find myself coming back to this passage since I first read it, um, and when, when I'm just in the need of kind of that recalibration, um, that, that need to kind of get a bigger, better version or vision of the world and, and reality as it really exists and just an eternal view of things. So uh, let's just jump right in. We're in Titus 2, uh, starting in verse 11, and we'll read to verse 14, so not a long ways. <clears throat> for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, give us a better understanding of your grace, a better vision of how good works are beautiful, and a gift that you have prepared for your people to to actually pursue in this life. Um, May we approach this passage today so that when we leave here today, we might not just go with with more intellectual knowledge, but um, with resolve and and a passion to, to live life for the sake of your glory. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did you ever notice when people are, are really excited, they want to tell you something, and, and, and there's some story that they tend to just go a million miles an hour, and they do it all in one, one big breath before they're even done? You see it, you know, little kids, they'll, they'll tell you these stories, and, and sometimes they're wonderful, sometimes they're not. Something like, you know, uh, uh, I, I saw this puppy, and it was, it was chasing a squirrel, and it ran in front of the Coke machine. Uh, rather the, the ice cream machine and it flipped over the truck and ice cream went everywhere and the guy said we can eat all the ice cream we want and then they breathe that's all one big continuous thing this, this passage is actually kind of like that um, I don't know if you, you noticed here when we were reading it but it's, it's just one extremely long run on sentence there's, there's only one period it's at the very end right uh, one single sentence so yeah, it's 79 words in it, but it's still just, just one sentence. You kind of you get the idea that you know Paul's English teacher would have put a bunch of red letters all over this, and not those kind of red letters. But um, you know, at some point you got to realize he's he's writing in Greek, perfectly normal in that context, and so maybe he would have gotten away with it. So uh, anyway, I I, <clears throat> I love the way this <clears throat> sentence begins. You see right off the back there that it begins with the grace of God, and it's not until the end that we really start to see this, uh, this ending with the good works of God's people coming into play. 
Uh, you see, this is a passage that, that really helps us answer that question of, of, of what do we do now that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ? Uh, and so let's look at this text and, and see what we learn from this. And, uh, and as we do, you know, I, I want you to, to, to notice right off the bat about this text that there are two appearances that you see in this text. The first one is, is that phrase, the grace of God has appeared, and that is looking backwards to, to Christ, uh, the incarnation, to him having come and dwelt among us. And then the second appearing in this passage is a, a looking forward to, to when Christ is going to, to come again. And so what we find is we live between those two appearings, Christ's first appearing and a second appearing. And so <clears throat> let's dig into this. Let's see what we can learn from it. Verse 11 tells us the grace of God has appeared. Grace is the unmerited favor and compassion of God. Grace is that receiving of something that we do not deserve. Um, for instance, we do not deserve forgiveness. We, we don't deserve, we haven't earned it, we haven't deserved that God would come and dwell among his people, but that's exactly what he did. And, and with Jesus, we see that God has, has entered into the real human hi history and, and revealed real grace to his people. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us, uh, of God's motivation there. It says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so you see, it's for his own sake. Now, we've seen in previous weeks what it means to live well and uh, in, in accordance with God's word. We've seen the details of that, right? And, and here... Uh, it is what's hard to get our heads around, I think. Uh, but it's very true of Christianity in general. It's this, that if we really want to encourage each other, if we really want to just uh, push each other towards living rightly, and, and we should, then the emphasis ought not to be on the things that we are to do. Sure, the scriptures tell us what we ought to do and not do, and praise God for that, but the emphasis should be uh, the emphasis on, on what fuels our pursuit of good works, which is, uh, is rather on a deep understanding of the grace of God, which he has lavished upon his people. And so then, as this second chapter, uh, as, as this portion we're in is really beginning, we, we've been encouraged towards this, this righteous living, or rather at the beginning of chapter 2, this righteous living. Remember, we saw things like self-control. Um, we saw things like we ought not to be pilfering or slandering. And, and all this should be motivated by this, this four-verse sentence with 79 words that we're looking at here. And that's, that's why it begins with that word for, right? For is pointing backwards. It's giving a reason for it. And, and then it explains that the reason is that the grace of God has appeared. Do you know what it's talking about there when it says the grace of God has appeared? I guess I've already told you. It means that Christ has come into the world. And in the next line, we see that uh, the grace of God, or what the grace of God has brought. It brings salvation for all people. Um, what do we see here? First, who brings the salvation? God brings the salvation. This is not B-Y-O-S, bring your own salvation. Uh, God brings the salvation. And in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus accomplishes salvation on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation by grace through faith. 
And then we look at this, and surely you notice that phrase when it says all people, right? Let me, let me be clear. This passage does not teach universalism. It doesn't teach the idea that everyone on the planet is just saved. Um, you know, we've got to consider the context here. Who has Paul addressed so far? Uh, we've seen he's spoken directly to the Cretans, to the elders, to uh, old men and, and old women, to young women young and old young men and slaves. And so the context here is that God is bringing salvation to all these different categories of people, all classes of people, uh, not just Jews, not just one group. You know, that, that God is, is, is no longer only calls one nation his people, but his, his people are from among the nations. Uh, it's similar to what we read in, in Matthew 28, 19, the, the great commission there to go and make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. Uh, and so uh, I, I point this out because I, I just want to make sure we understand this is not universalism. universalism. If it were universalism, um, and, and it doesn't teach that anywhere else in, in, in Scripture, and, and if it were the case, you wouldn't have a text like John three eighteen, which tells us, speaking or rather referring to Christ, says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is a conditional aspect there. And so then as verse 12 begins, we, we learn a second thing that the grace of God is doing. What's it say there? I hope you have it in front of you. You can see this. It's, it's training us, right? You're, you're familiar with the term saving grace, I expect, meaning uh, grace that saves us. And here we're seeing this uh, training grace, meaning grace that trains us. Uh, again, we, we see the grace of God is the fuel for obedience to the word of God. See, at, at previous times in American history, the general cultural assumption was just that um, <clears throat> this is the word of God, God has spoken, and we submit ourselves to it. Uh, today, that assumption is, is just gone culturally. It just is. And, and there's not many, even among those who profess faith in Christ today who, who really view God's word as an, an imperative, as a, a command for us to, to seek conformity to in any way. And, and, and so here in our text, we've got this term training. That's a very important term. We're, we're familiar with this term. You know it. You've likely been to work training. Uh, some of you go to NTC, National Training Center. Uh, some of you train for a 5K or a marathon or maybe just to try to get to the mailbox and back. You know, and, and we train because it's not a natural thing to just up and run 13 miles. It's not for most of people. Uh, not all at once, anyway. And, and, and training teaches us, then, to do something that is not natural for us to do. So training is this, this general word, you know. You could be training for a, a race, like we mentioned before, but you could also uh, be training for just about anything. I knew a guy named Sam Basham who... Uh, spent most of a year one time training for something called the Gallon Challenge. You've got to drink a gallon of milk and keep a gallon of milk down for an hour. Uh, everyone loses this thing, but he was convinced that, uh, you know, he could train for it. And his mom told me every morning he'd get up and drink these big glasses of milk, thinking my body will learn how to process milk real quick. Um, she also told me he didn't train long enough or well enough, and maybe in this case it wouldn't have worked anyway. Uh, I can confirm that he failed miserably two years in a row. Uh, <clears throat> but training us here is for something very specific, and, and it does work. Uh, here we see that we, uh, we're not training for a 5K, but we're training for what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. 
Those are natural things, and we're training because they are unnatural. Uh, to, to reject it is unnatural. And so renounce means to reject, and we're to reject ungodliness and, and worldly passions, like uh, Detembe Matumbo rejects basketballs, right? You've seen this commercial in your life, right? No, 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 not in my life. None of you, right? Okay. Ungodliness, then, is anything that is sin. Uh, worldly passions are sinful things that uh, we in our natural condition just desire. Uh, you know the obvious things. Um, sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, stealing, arrogance, some things like that. But, but ungodliness is also just living life as though God doesn't exist at all. As though his commands have no place in your life. Uh, as if they've never been revealed in scripture at all. In many ways, you know, this is about not just knowing what is a wise choice, but actually making these wise choices. Uh, in our family, when the weather is good, we, we take the kids to school on bikes. We'll, we'll ride and we go to the cemetery, and it's a nice place to go. Uh, but a few weeks ago, Sadie Piper, my, my eight-year-old daughter, uh, shouted across the house, you know, Dad, are we going to ride our bikes today? And I pull up the weather app, and I'm looking at it, and there's an 80% chance of rain. And so I tell her, it's a, it's a high chance of rain. I don't think that would be wise today. And I kind of go about my business, and then a few moments of silence, and, and she responds, so, yes or no? <laughs> really? <clears throat> and you, you kind of get this picture of, we've already established that would be unwise, and you want to know if we're going to do it. I, I, I think sometimes that's the way we process through Scripture. You know, should I, should I tell that lie to my boss because it might get me out of trouble, I'm, I'm afraid of getting into, and, and then you think, well, you know, the Ninth Commandment forbids it. Colossians 3.9 teaches that we ought not lie. And, uh, and yet, how often do we, do we know that and just think, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm kind of unsure about this. Um, and maybe that makes it sound way too simple, right? You know, truth is, choosing obedience to God instead of the immediate pleasures of sin is not an easy thing to actually do. In fact, that's, that's why it's an act of faith, Right? Um, what faith does then is it, it causes us to, to really believe what God has done for us on the cross. And it leads us to, to really believe what God has called us to, uh, it, it, you know, is, is really better for us than whatever it is that we're desiring to do in that moment. You know, whatever it is that we've been called to renounce, it's a, a believing God in this. Which means that the motivation to obey God is is not to win his love for us. That, that can't be it. And it can't be it because we've, we've already received the love of God and he's proven that for us by, by giving his life for us. Um, so there's nothing to earn there. And, and, and the passage then here lists these three positive virtues of, uh, that the grace of God is training us towards. And the first one we see there is uh, self-controlled. Remember, we've seen this all over this book. Self-controlled over and over again at the most basic level, self-control is restraint exercised over one's own impulses, emotions, and desires. That's Webster's. Uh, restraint exercised over one's impulses, emotions, or desires. And I, I find it helpful in my mind sometimes to, to modify that term because uh, I struggle with the idea of self-control. That just seems all about us, but uh, you know, it doesn't acknowledge the real source of self-control. So maybe even just to think sometimes, you know, something like, Holy Spirit-fueled self-controlled or, or gospel-supplied self-control, something of, of that nature. Uh, 
The thing about self-control, though, is, is it implies that we have bought into this, right? That it's, it is what we desire. Um, it, it's the difference between saying, I can't look at pornography because God forbids lust, compared to saying, I, I won't look at pornography because God forbids me to embrace lust. I, I won't implies that you agree with this restriction. You believe that, that God has it there for your actual good. This is something you desire as well now. And so <clears throat> we then see that our, our training here involves these last two things. It mentions uh, that we live upright and, and godly lives. That's, that's positive wording of what we saw before of renouncing ungodliness that, that we saw earlier. And, and as we hear this, keep in mind that, that training implies a, a process, right? Not a completed state of, of some sort of arrival, but a process. And so you, you're absolutely in process right now. Me, absolutely in process. And that's going to remain until the day that Christ actually returns. Um, and so then verse 13 says that we are to the point of Christ's returning, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word waiting there in the Greek carries this idea of, of eagerness, like just cannot wait, kind of like a, a child on Christmas morning just waiting for the sun to come up so everything can begin. Um, and, and then it tells us, you know, who are we waiting for? Our blessed hope. Well, of course, I mean, you, you probably figured this out right away. That's talking about Christ. Uh, we're reminded of this in the words of the institution that we, we hear before the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. You know, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're waiting for the, the second coming of Christ, and we really are. And sometimes we forget that, but we really are. And, and, and did you notice here that it doesn't really say the second coming of Christ? You know, it's, it's one of those little details, but it's, it's important. It says... The appearing when it speaks of Jesus here. In fact, the word appearing in the New Testament is the most common way that it refers to Christ's second coming. And that's not by mistake because Jesus currently, right now, in this very moment, even as we sit here, is reigning on the throne. It's not just that later he will reign, but, but right now it is reigning. And so, you know, however, uh, Christ's reign and, and his glory and, and those wonderful things that we're looking forward are mostly hidden from us at this point. And, and that's why when, when you go and you turn on CNN or, or one of the other news channels, you know, the, the world that you see coming through that, that is, it just looks like it's absolutely out of control, out of God's control. You see, but the expectant hope is this, that the day will come that, that Jesus um, uh, again will be revealed uh, and Christ, the glory of God, will appear before us. And in that day, what we, what we read in, in um, Philippians 2.10, oh, I guess it was a year and a half ago now, so some of you don't remember this, but, uh, you know, it'll become a reality. It reads, at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, when, it, when Jesus comes, though, we're not going to be seeing something new but what already is, is going to be revealed to us. He will appear to us. And we tend to think about uh, just how wonderful that day is going to be. And, and that's because for, for those who are in Christ, it will be an absolute wonderful day. Here comes our, our Savior. But uh, I was talking to Zach Robinson this week, and he pointed out that the day won't be wonderful for those who are not secure in Christ. Um, 
And so in that sense, I, I think we can be thankful that, that we are still waiting. You know that, that moment where you just think, boy, I wish it would happen right now. Um, but that means that you know, those people we, we care about, those, uh, those people in our, our, our life that we, we know don't know Christ, that, that they still have time to hear and believe the gospel. So now, uh, Creflo Dollar, I don't quote him very often. Uh, a health wealth TV preacher, he, he once said this. He said, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. There's no truth in those words. Um, and I only mention them because of the contrast here. Uh, you know, we learn something very different here in verse 14. It, it kind of tells us what, what did Jesus accomplish? What was the death on, on the cross accomplishing? Why did he die on the cross for us? And, uh, you know, he, he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, that's sin, and then it goes on, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. First of all, do you hear the, the corporate language there? Um, there? The larger multiple people, a group, right? So, you know, uh, faith is an individual thing for, for sure, but it immediately brings us into this corporate reality um, because our faith is shared with others whose faith is also in Christ. And when God gives you saving faith in Jesus, you become a part of God's people, a part of his treasured possession. And, and so you see this, this corporate nature throughout the New Testament. You know, 1 Peter 2.9 reads, uh, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, that's plural, uh, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so it's corporate, but it's also very possessive here. We actually belong to God. You know, way, way back early in the, in, in the Bible, in Ezekiel 37, 23, God uh, speaks of how he is actively calling a people to be his. There he says, But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God has bought us. He paid for us with the, uh, the flesh and the blood of Christ. He, he loves us, sustains us, cares for us, and he has a vision for our lives, not just in eternity, but today. Uh, and the vision that we're seeing here for our lives is that we are zealous for good works. Do you hear that and that bothers you? Uh, that phrase, you know, that, that's always kind of jumped out at me. I love that first part, you know, zealous, you know, it means passionate. Yeah, that's what I want, but... Uh, you know, we, we see that other phrase, and it, it kind of weirds us out a little. And we'll come back to that in just a second. But, um, you know, first thing here is that uh, in the Greek, there's two ways that we get to this phrase, good works. Uh, one is literally, and this one's easy, the word good and the word works. And those go together to make the phrase good works. That's simple, right? Um, but the other one is from this Greek word kalos, which literally means beautiful, beautiful. And so as those come together, you've got this picture of beautiful works. And, and, and that's the case right, right here in our, our text today. It's talking about these beautiful works, right? Uh, it, and, it, and it certainly should cause us to, to reflect on our lives and to ask that question, you know, have my works, have my actions, my way of life been beautiful? You know, has the way I, I've served and cared for my family been, been beautiful or just selfish? Has the way I've interacted with my neighbor been, been beautiful my covenant family 
Has it shown the, the beauty of my, my, my Savior? You know, do, we, do we care about the poor and the oppressed, the lost and the lonely? Is it, is it something beautiful that you see in the way we engage with people in that way? I think uh, some years ago I, I realized, uh, you know, kind of a, along the way, uh, particularly as I became more reformed in my thinking, I'd, I'd lost the, the, the sense of the importance of, of good works in, in the Christian life. You see, I'd, I'd rightly learned that my good works do not save me, and they don't preserve my salvation, and that God doesn't love me more or less because of my good works. And while all of those are biblically right, absolutely correct, uh, I, for some reason, more subconscious at first than conscience, but at some reason, came to the conclusion that good works don't matter. Um, and if I'm honest, I, I, you know, there was even this, this sense of fear that if I did good works... I might think I contributed to my salvation, or I might think that God would love me more. And so it was better just, just stay away from it. Don't do good works, you know. Just keep them at a, you know, at a uh, copperhead's distance from you, something like that. And, and I'd come to that conclusion from, from honestly a very self-centered view of not just the world, but my, my own salvation. I, I kept asking that question, you know, what, what must I do? And then stopping there. Never asking the question, what brings glory to my God and my Savior? Or how, how might I, I live so that it brings pleasure to my God? Or even the question, you know, how does, how does God desire that I live today? And, and so when I, I realized I, I wasn't zealous for good works, and I, I went and I looked up references of every place in Scripture where the word work shows up, and I began working through them uh, and just sifting through that list. And, and what I found was that works really don't save us, uh, but that God certainly desires that our lives be filled with good and beautiful works for the sake, uh, not for the sake of my salvation, but for the sake uh, of God's name, for His glory, which, which we see in His, His word is also... The reason he redeemed us apart from works. Ephesians 2, right? We know this verse well. Many of you do anyway. Uh, it couldn't be more clear that salvation is apart from works. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And too often we just stop there, and that's the end of it. But that passage continues on. There's, there's a verse 10 after verse 9. And verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works we do for others in our lives flow from the good work that Christ has done for us in the gospel. And a bit of a warning here, you know. We must, we must be cautious again with, with good works. Uh, that we understand that they, they flow from our, our commitment to Christ, that it's not that we're making some commitment uh, to a holy lifestyle or some general moral standard, but that it is a, a commitment to, to God himself, a God who has loved us and redeemed us and, and has prepared these good works for our lives. Uh, and so the works we do are, are beautiful because they show the beauty of our gracious God um, yes, these, these good works then adorn the grace of God like we were seeing in earlier weeks. Um, so let's, let's consider how this applies to our life. First, got to be so clear in this, your salvation is secure in Christ, not your good works. Do not pursue good works as a means of forgiveness from God 
or as a way to gain the love of Christ. Don't do that. Because, Christian, you already have the love of God, and you already have true and real forgiveness. However, your life is about much more than simply securing salvation for yourself. You know, your life is about the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. Many of you have it memorized, right? What, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Why do we exist? And, and the answer to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and so we, we apply this by generally asking questions like, you know, how can we make adjustments? Big adjustments maybe, small adjustments maybe but adjustments so that our lives are, are more in line with the purpose of bringing glory to the name of Christ. And this, this doesn't mean you can't have temporal interests. And I mention this because I think sometimes we just want to think, okay, I only read the Bible. I never watch TV. I never watch another football game. Uh, you know, it's good that you're a K-State fan or a Cubs fan. It's better than being a KU fan. <laughs> it is good to go to concerts and enjoy music. You know, your, your spot on the ultimate Frisbee team, we might tease you about it, but that's a good thing, right? Uh, in, in fact, these interests, they, they give you a context and a network of, of friendships in which to zealously do these good works, particularly those that are, are done for others. That's a, a good thing. Number three, God has called us in no uncertain terms to renounce ungodliness. Don't, don't just gloss over that, right? Too often we're like, my sin is forgiven. Forget that. Let's just get on to the good part. Uh, don't gloss over that. There is no uncertain terms about that. So uh, let me ask you this. In, in what ways will you say no to ungodliness today? You know, where in your life right now um, do you need your I can't or I shouldn't to, to be I won't? You know, I mentioned it before. Pornography or excessive or underage use of alcohol. Maybe it's just dishonesty or anger, temper. You know, and embrace the, the deep knowledge of what Jesus has already done for you as a, a fuel for, for living for his glory in these things. Remembering what he has done. Um, four, good works are good, right? That seems redundant. Good works are good. Uh, perhaps you need to reconsider the place of good works in your life. Also, uh, good works are often, too often we only think of them in terms of, of uh, through this filter of, you know, what I, what I shouldn't do. I, I don't do that and that's a good work. It's, it's, it's not just, though, that we don't steal from targets, right? It's that we're generous to others with the money and the possessions that God has given us. It's, it's not just that we aren't rude to others, right? It's, it's also that we are, are showing kindness to those uh, around us, particularly those who, who we really struggle and find it difficult to be kind to. It's serving in, in places of, of mercy ministry. It's, it's holding that door open for that, that mother of three who's trying to get into Chick-fil-A and it's raining outside, knowing you're just going to get soaked while her kid takes their good old time. It's the little things that, that show you care about this community. I, I, I think somewhere along the line we forgot things, you know. Uh, I do it too. I'm walking on the sidewalk and trash blows in front of me. I just step over it and keep going, you know. One of those things that show you care about the community God's place you in. Pick it up. Throw it away. It's not your trash. No, but pick it up. You know, just, just ask yourself, is there anything I can do in this moment that would bring honor to the name of my Savior? Um, you know, it might be helpful to remember Martin Luther with this his well-known phrase, you know, God does not need your good works. Amen? But he continues, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Um, and finally, it's okay to feel good about the things that you do. Um, it's right 
for God to give you joy uh, as you act in obedience to his word. That's a good thing. Sometimes we feel like you shouldn't feel that. That's a good thing. Um, and so then let's live like we truly believe that Jesus has appeared in the past and has accomplished salvation for us. And at the same time, live uh, uh, that we know that Jesus will once again appear before us in radiant glory. And so we, we rest in the promise that, that Jesus has washed us clean and we live knowing that this Savior we love is coming back for us and we await that day. Let's pray.